0: Ludus Novus. Episode 3. August 20th, 2006. Not the same thing after all. Hey everybody, my name is Gregory Weir, and I'd like to welcome you to Ludus Novus, the podcast that talks about uh, interactive fiction, digital games, and role-playing in the context of the art of interaction. Well, uh, about a week ago I got back from Gen Con, a big gaming convention in Indianapolis, and at Gen Con I ended up running three games. Now, these three role-playing games I'd run previously to, to just sort of try them out, get some practice at playing them. So I had two different groups of people playing each of the games, and that's what led me to come up with the topic for today's episode, which is variable player experience. One of the special qualities of interactive entertainment is that theoretically the player should get a different experience every time she plays the game and two different players should get different experiences playing the same game. And that's that's something that separates it to a certain extent from more static narrative. Now I realize the author is dead and when you look at static narrative the reader brings a whole lot more to that static text than just the static text. But in interactivity it's not only what the, the reader will say takes to the text, it's also how they approach the text during their experience of it. So when someone plays a game they make choices during that game that affect their gameplay. So I see these, these variable player experiences in, on two levels. First, there's the variable player experience that is going through the path of the game in a slightly different way. So when you play a game like Doom, which has you progress a series of levels that are all very one at a time in a set order, two different people can approach that set of levels in two different ways. One person could choose to run straight through the level looking for the exit, ignoring all the monsters. Another player could fight all the monsters and take quite a lot of damage, but end up making it through. And another player could fight all the monsters, do real well, defeat them, and go out without a sweat. So that's one aspect of the interactivity of of a game. You can have different people having different feelings, different experiences with the same content. However, if you look at it from sort of a narrative side of things, the basic story that those people are experiencing is pretty much the same. One of them, Battle Demons uh, from Hell, craftily avoiding them at every turn. One of them battle demons from hell, barely making it through. One of them battle demons from hell, doing quite well at killing them. But still, they're, they're still battling demons from hell. They're still following the same progression of levels. What you can also do, another way that you can offer variable player experience, is by allowing the, the players to make meaningful choices that affect the path of the game. So the, the classic example of this is the multiple endings that you see in a game like Deus Ex, where you chug along through the game and basically take the same path, but somewhere along there there's a decision point or three that allows you to split off and experience a slightly different part of the game and eventually end up having a, a, a different ending cutscene for the game. In ludology circles, this sort of player control over how things turn out is referred to as player agency, a uh, term which, as far as I can tell, was coined by Murray in her book Hamlet on the Holodeck, which I really need to get around to reading. Um, Player agency doesn't just go to this point of having multiple endings. It's It's a term that's used to describe your ability to make meaningful actions, to make actions that actually affect things. And in, in this perspective, from what I understand, there's a definite distinction between the low-scale actions that the player takes to survive or to progress from one minute to the next, and these, these larger ranging examples of player agency which actually affect things. These two things, the the low-scale interactivity and the higher-scale player agency, I think are the most important aspects of interactive entertainment as an art form. If you're looking at what makes interactive entertainment different from other things, this sounds obvious, but it's the interactivity. It's both these things. It's the fact that On a low scale, the progression of the text, of of the piece, the game, whatever you're working on, requires the player interaction. And on a larger scale, the outcome of events either depends on player agency, depends on the player making choices, or is significant in that the player cannot affect what's going on. This isn't universal. I'm a bit of a snob in this area. I think that I, I like those pieces best that actually let the player affect the outcome. And I, think, I always think it's kind of a waste when you don't have the option to affect the, the progress of the plot. You know, how you're playing a game and you find out that, oh, if I want to do anything else, I have to go talk to this guy. And I don't want to talk to this guy because I know it's a trap, but I can't move on with the game until I do. Or if you're in a role-playing game and the uh, game master, the guy who's in charge of the game, is, is saying, oh no, you, you can't do that, and you're like, oh, I want to do this other smart thing, and they're like, no, no, you can't do that either. You have to go along with the course. I always think that's kind of a waste. I can see circumstances in which it's useful, and circumstances in which it doesn't have to be all high and classy like Ramses or anything. Ramsey's is a in a piece of interactive fiction in which your character essentially does things on his own. If you give him instructions to do things, he'll say, uh, no, no, I, I, I could never do that. That I, I thought about it, but but no. It's it's sort of the extreme of the the unresponsive player character. Um In fact, with Ramses, it's said that you can complete the entire game by typing wait 20 times, and and the exact same thing will happen. In that case, it's significant that you lack player agency. It it reflects on your player character that you can try to give give him commands to do other things, but he's unable to do them by virtue of his own lack of self-confidence. But I don't think that that's the only justification for not having the large-scale player agency style interactivity. I think that a game can be perfectly valid and justified if it lacks that sort of high-scale interactivity, but as a personal preference I like, ones, I like games that, that give you more, that give you the ability to change what's going on. After the break I will talk a little bit about role-playing games and then I will give some specific ga- examples from the games that I ran a week ago, and uh, talk about some techniques that game designers can use to to add interactivity to their games. <laughs> Now, those of you who listened to my first two episodes may be a bit confused at hearing me talk about role-playing games. But really, besides the fact that I'm both a video game geek and a role-playing game geek, I think that they're really very similar in terms of, of, of their art forms. They're both types of expression that involve a writer creating a world or a plot line or both and then involving players in controlling the evolution of a story that occurs within that framework. So even though a digital game or a piece of interactive fiction has a very strong rules system that's run by the computer that governs how it works. Role-playing games are are really very similar. They offer you much much more range of interaction than a typical digital game or interactive fiction game. Because, uh, for the very simple reason that it's very hard to make a computer program that can adapt to anything that the player does. Whereas if you're running a role-playing game, and this is pen and paper role-playing game in case you're confused, you can, if a player does something you totally don't expect, you can make something up on the fly. For those of you who are completely unfamiliar with what I'm talking about when I say role-playing game, think Dungeons and & Dragons, and if you're still confused, look at the show notes. I'll link to Wikipedia. So, I ran three role-playing games at Gen Con, which is a big gaming convention in Indianapolis. I had intended to run four, but my fourth game ended up not having enough people show up for it. So, I ended up running only three at Gen Con, and I had rehearsed each of these games before at home with a group of my friends. And that's what made me think of the topic for this podcast, because... I had a sort of a perfect test case for this. I had an experimental set of three different games and two different sets of players for each game that would really let me think about the ramifications of having this variable player experience. The one that had the most... The easiest to explain difference was a game called A Stopped Watch and Slow Dream. I won't bore you with the intricate and masterful details of the plot, but the game had a fundamental choice at the beginning, which was that the, the player characters had a very valuable object that a strange and suspicious individual said, Hey, if you give me this object, Let us use it for a while, we'll give it back to you, and send you home from this scary and mysterious place we brought you." The first group, the group of my friends, uh, gave the strange and mysterious stranger their watch and proceeded to to very shortly realize that they probably shouldn't have given them that watch, and uh, they were pretty much trying to get it back and trying to make up for it for the rest of the game the group at Gen Con didn't give the highly suspicious individual the watch. Now the the game was designed so that the the choice of whether or not they gave the watch didn't damn you to, to losing or anything. If you gave up the watch, then you had a more clear goal. You you found out that oh you should get that watch back, that's dangerous and so on. If you didn't give up the watch, you were a bit more powerful. It, it gave the object gave each of the characters a different ability, so if someone was holding this pocket watch they would be able to do one thing and another person would be able to do another thing. So that that was a choice that was pretty clear-cut, pretty easy to translate that into digital form, but at the same time it didn't really have agency to it. it you weren't really changing the outcome of the game. Things would progress in the same way, it would just be you'd be a little more over- underpowered for what was going on and have to do things a little different way. So that really, that, that's more of an example of a low-level interactive bit straining to become actual player agency but ultimately failing. Now another game I played called Galacticord had a more, what I feel was an actual example of player agency, although this was completely un- inadvertent on my part. Galactic Core is a game about a uh, rock band, a uh, crime-solving rock band I- in space, and the characters are performing in a concert on a space station. When mysterious things happen, there's a crime that's committed, and the station needs to be evacuated, and the the rock band is implicated in, in the, the events, and so they, they need to clear their name. Pretty standard Scooby-Doo stuff. My intent for this little campaign was for the, the player characters to end up sneaking around behind the scenes, figuring out who was responsible and taking care of things themselves, and uh, ultimately it would all finish up with an exciting chase scene and so on. And that's pretty much what the, the folks here at home did. However, the people at Indy, well, they actually played it smart. They went around and gathered evidence, and when they had enough that they thought that they could prove their case, they, you know, told people in authority about it. So that kind of threw off the campaign a little, but it ended up also having a good ending. Although uh, it was a little less uh, less fleshed out than the ending that I had planned for, because I kind of had to do things on the fly. But but there's an example of a choice that was made. The, the choice not to rush in, the choice to be cautious, really affected the, the course of the plot. It... it took out a large section of it, and, and the entire resolution of the story happened differently. Now, the thing is that this little bit of player agency, I hadn't planned for. If you're running a, a role-playing game that that's pen and paper, you can handle that. You can just make something up and deal with it, go with the flow. But with a digital game, it's much harder than that. And... Uh, we don't really yet have a good digital game that can adapt to anything that that, that occurs within the scope of the game, although the, the senior thesis that I'm going to be working on this year uh, may make a step in that direction, but we'll see. So, in conclusion, two kinds of interaction, low level and high level. There's the basic day-to-day, do I die or do I don't in this second kind of interaction, and then there's the player agency, an uh, interaction that actually affects the course of the the story or the narrative of the game. And the second is a lot rarer. Very few games allow it and those that do usually only allow it in a sort of which f- path do you take on this fork in the plot sort of way. So I'd, li- I'd like to see a little more complexity. I'd like to see more player agency in games. And we'll see how that turns out. And uh, that's all I'm going to talk about for today. If you want to get more information on the stuff that I've talked about, or if you want to give a comment, you can go to ludusnovus.net, where I'll have show notes and comments and uh, a few blog posts that I made that that didn't end up turning into a podcast. If you like Ludus Novus, tell a friend. I, I like having more listeners. Ludus Novus is offered under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution 2.5 license, which means you can do whatever you want with it as long as you say that it's done by me and you don't make any money off of it. The music for this episode is Enrique Granados Spanish Dance No. 2, performed by Mario Mattioli. It's also available under a Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial 2.5 license. See you next time.